You know, it was one of the more interesting experiences of being in campus ministry, watching um, what would happen to young men who would finish up their um, uh, rush experience and walked into the challenging uh, pledgeship experiences. <laughs> experiences. Um, you know, for many of them, they realized that they had signed up for one thing, and when they got on the inside of it, they realized that it was going to cost them something uh, to participate in such an organization. Well, We've arrived in a section in Luke that we've been studying these last few weeks. It's kind of the same idea. Jesus, in the first nine to ten chapters of Luke, has spent most of his time talking about who he is. And now, up until before the time of the cross, he's talking about exactly uh, what it is that it's going to be, uh, what it is it's going to cost his people to follow him, what it actually means, and what it is that you've actually signed up for. And of course, as you can imagine, as Jesus begins to unpack all this, he loses some people along the way. Um, and they discovered their stumbling blocks to following Jesus. But I don't think that there's one quite so large, in terms of stumbling blocks, that is, for modern people like us, than what he says in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. The narrow door. Because Jesus comes right out and admits to something that is highly distasteful to very educated modern people, and it's simply this. Christianity is narrow and exclusive in its truth claims of other competing worldviews. And I wonder if you've encountered this among people, um, especially maybe among non-Christians, maybe from inside your own mind. Um, The objection to this teaching of Christianity is not so much formal, but rather it's instinctual. And it goes something like this. It's like, Of all of the religions in the world, it just feels either arrogant or naive to think that you Christians have found the only one. How can that be? Uh, I've spoken to students over and over again who've said things just like this. Like, I just can't believe that Christians think they have exclusive rights on the truth. It is hard for me to believe that a sincere Muslim or Buddhist would be rejected by God just because he got the wrong religion. You know, one of the reasons uh, that, that's one of the more interesting features of modern life, I think, is um, how much uh, your exposure, if you're in sort of the 40 years old and below uh, um, uh, age range, how much more exposure to the broader world you have than anyone my age or older. Uh, in many ways, the internet sort of brought the world into the palm of your hand. You see a lot of stuff. Sociologists, interestingly enough, attribute some of the uh, liberty movements going on around the world to the fact that people can see other ways of looking at the world through the internet and otherwise. It's one of the reasons why totalitarian governments around the world are doing their best to limit what the internet can show you of people on the outside. In other words, this generation in that regard is much more sophisticated than mine was because you see more. I started noticing this years ago when students uh, would travel abroad uh, and sort of study abroad during their college age years, which I never did, but it seems like everyone does it now. And then invariably, they would come back from studying abroad for a semester and they would say, you know, this was hard for me because I met people who were just so sincere. They seemed like really good people. Am I really willing to say that they stand condemned, you know, because they happen to have, I don't know, parents that were born in the wrong country, it seems like, or perhaps believe the wrong things. And, you know, to make matters worse, many of us were sort of raised in religious traditions 
that kind of did their best to keep people from ever asking these kinds of questions. You know, uh, we were told that the essence of faith was to believe. And so the minute that you start asking questions about how your faith sort of stands to other religions, it made you feel like you were doubting. And if you're doubting, then you must not be believing. So don't you dare ask any questions about how Christianity does or does not fit in with the rest of the world. Makes you feel like that's the message. That's some of the messages that I got. Well, we're looking at this year the, the, the question of how Jesus was compelling for his original audience and why he was that would cause them to drop everything and follow him. But now for our day, in this sort of post-Christian mindset, you've got to be saying to yourself, what could possibly be compelling about Jesus declaring that his version of salvation is not just one of the many ways that you could get to God? That seems like that would be so bad. It really would seem so much more, so much more modern, so much more open-minded and gracious had Jesus' message been something like this. You know, look, follow me and you'll be so much happier in life. If you're looking for fulfillment, you know, come to me. Look, Christians are not the only ones who have found the way to happiness through their religion, but, but we're an awfully good one. That, what I'm saying is, doesn't that feel much more gracious, like that would have been better to the modern mind. Well, this is why Jesus kind of slaps that thinking in the face with his presentation. But I want to throw out just a couple thoughts to you this morning, big sort of ideas. And first is this, that 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 modern objection to Christianity is actually not quite as sophisticated as it claims. We'll get to that. But secondly, I actually think there is something incredibly compelling about the fact that Jesus had the narrowness to his message but you got to dig into it and figure out why it was in the first place and what Jesus is actually saying. Because when we pose those kinds of questions to these three little stories in Jesus' teaching, uh, then we get some very interesting answers to the question of how do you gain entrance into Jesus' kingdom? How do you? Three things, as I want to do. Three things that I want to throw out to you about entrance into this kingdom. The first one is this. Entrance into the kingdom is not limited by hypocritical nonsense. Step step number one, okay? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in verses 10 through 17, you get Jesus healing the chronic back pain to a woman who the religious leaders said he should not have done on the day that he did it, okay? He did it on the wrong day. Now, remember, from a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how the religious elite had turned, you know, Sabbath observance into this, like, dizzying maze of do's and don'ts. And Jesus' point is kind of simple. He's like, look, if animals can receive basic care on Sundays, on the Lord's Day, uh, then how much more should human beings, especially a child of Abraham, a Jewish lady? In other words, what more appropriate day could there have been than to heal them on the Sabbath? A number of years ago, I was watching a friendly disagreement between two friends uh, about the utility of electronic Bibles, you know, a Bible that you look at on your phone or your iPad or something like this. My one friend was basically saying that he didn't like them. I remember him saying, you know, there's just, there's something inherently nourishing about having a physical book in your hand and reading God's word in it. And the other person was saying, okay, let me get this straight. So I have access to like 18 different translations here, including the original Greek and the Hebrew, 
Um, I can dig into each word and study it with the touch of a button. Um, I can digest in about five minutes what it would have taken a scholar 50 years ago, five hours to get into. So now tell me how that's a bad thing. Now look, this is not my commercial for, for electronic Bibles. I'm just saying that that's the way that Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, okay? Because what he's saying is, is I'm appealing to the sense of like, if your Sabbath observance and your desire to be so holy as you do so makes you upset when someone is actually healed from a lifelong ailment, you know, it just kind of makes you think that that's not, you might have missed the point of all this. It sounds like you, you just kind of like to be in charge of people, right? To order them around. In other words, what the Pharisees were setting forward was actually a false version of Christianity's exclusivity or religious exclusivity. I mean, the Pharisees were incredibly exclusive, right? They live this way, follow the rules, and you can have peace with God and man. But so many people have rejected what they think is Christianity and that narrow message when what they're really rejecting is, is the religion of the Pharisees. There's a distinction there. In other words, it's not genuine Christianity that they're reacting to. It's a pious, false version of it. So when Jesus speaks to these Pharisees, the skeptic ought to have his ears, his ears open for this. You know, like we studied a couple of weeks ago, you know, a hypocrite is that person who does the same things that they condemn. And Jesus is saying, look, if you would perform these simple actions of untying your donkey or something to make your life a little less convenient, a little less inconvenient, isn't it incredibly hypocritical to get mad at someone who healed someone of a massive, lifelong inconvenience. It is unjust to deny someone something that you have free access to, Jesus is saying. How could you do that? It reveals something about you, does it not? It's a false version of religious exclusivity, uh, this hypocritical, pharisaical way of thinking. Paul in Romans 2 says this, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Listen to this last verse. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. See what Paul is saying? He's saying, you're giving the skeptic a good reason to walk away from Christianity because you've put forward a false version of how my claims are exclusive. But, you know, we could talk about sort of the nature of hypocrisy all over again. We already did that. But notice the effect of it because Jesus in verse 16 is saying, look, I'm bringing a worldwide healing and you aren't excited about it? In other words, it's a good sign that you're a hypocrite when you see good things happening to other people around you or in the world, and it doesn't make you excited. You can't rejoice with them. And so Jesus is exposing the nonsense of saying, you really don't have these people's best interest at heart, do you? You can't really rejoice with them, can you? I wonder what that could mean. Look, before we go to the second point, I think it's a great moment for some, for some gentle reflection on this point. I mean, can you rejoice when that other girl got engaged even though you don't have any present prospects? Hmm. 
Can you find excitement in your heart for that coworker who got the promotion over you when if you really thought about it, they probably needed it more than you do? Can you look at your children and, and respect their career choice even, though if, even if it's not the one that you would have chosen for them? I mean, it's a good job. It's just not your job. Well, if not, then the chances are, Jesus is saying, hypocrisy is growing up inside of you. And you're missing something huge about the heart of Jesus' gospel. And even worse, you're giving skeptics a good reason to walk away from Christianity. Because it's so narrow in its claims in that way. Well, this has to be confronted in us, right? So entrance into the kingdom is not limited by hypocritical nonsense. Secondly... Entrance into the kingdom is not limited in its scope. This is where Jesus is going in here. Look at verse 18. I mean, that is a pregnant question Jesus asked. How in the world am I going to illustrate this issue for you? What similes should I draw upon here? And he chooses two. That the kingdom in one respect is like the the, the borderline microscopic mustard seed. You know, he chooses one that says, look, the kingdom, it looks insignificant. It's so small like a tiny seed, but when it grows, it becomes a haven for all kinds of birds. That's what the kingdom is like. It starts insignificantly. You know, something that no one in the world would notice. A random healing of a poor woman's chronic back troubles, but eventually would end up bringing healing to all kinds of peoples and nations. One of my favorite commentators in Luke is a guy named Douglas Milne, who says that that little phrase, the birds of the air, Uh, is actually code for the peoples of the world, people outside of the boundaries of Jewish people. In other words, he's saying, it's people from all over the world that I'm going to gather in my kingdom. And so Jesus is saying, yes, my message is exclusively tied to me, yes, but not in the sense of what kinds of people my message is for. Does that make sense? Yes, it's exclusively tied to me, but it's kiss for anybody regardless of their background. And so he's saying, therefore, the kingdom of God is it's a little bit hard to see, kind of like leaven that gets placed inside of a lump that over time is going to work its way out through everything. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to send a message that eventually is going to work its way out so that every tongue confesses and every knee bows and says that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're not there yet, he says, but we're headed there. It's guaranteed. Now look, when you put that mustard seed and the leaven illustration together right next to the Pharisees' conversation, you realize what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, my gospel is going to be expansive, but only to those who realize that it's effective for anyone. You see the difference? This is is a vintage uh, Tim Kellerism here. He says, in every other religion, what keeps you on the outs is the fact that you haven't lived up to some standard. But only in Christianity do you have Jesus teaching really just the opposite. That the only way in to Christianity is to realize that you can't come in. At least not of your own efforts. You know the phrase, all you need in Christianity is need. All you need is nothing. If you try to do something, you'll get nothing. If you come with nothing, you get everything. And this system creates a way in that is ironic that anyone can join. You just can't come in with something that makes you think you leverage God's favor. Salvation is going to be by grace or it won't be salvation at all. Uh, This is powerful. It's powerful because it says it talks about a kingdom that will include all 
who don't think they have any reason to think that they should be included, which is completely counterintuitive. But take a moment to compare this with the way in which a secular person takes it. <clears throat> and I'll use an illustration that I just heard for years from college students who, without any real prompting from a secular professor, would often come to me with the old parable of the three blind men and the elephant. You remember this little story? Um, the, the parable goes like this. There are three blind men who approach an elephant to describe it. One of them gropes around the leg and says, oh, well, you know, an elephant is like a tree trunk. Another one looks and sort of feels along the side of the elephant and goes, no, 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 he's more like a wall. The third one goes up to the trunk and feels the trunk and says, no, he's, he's long and snake-like. But the truth is that they're all feeling the same elephant. So these students would come and look at me and say, well, that's, that's how I feel like religion is. We're all just kind of groping around the same thing. It's the same essential elephant. We're just blind and we can see, but it's all the same. Now, now feel the weight of that. Doesn't that feel compelling to you? But notice something very subtle about that illustration because it comes off so humble and so open and so accepting. But isn't it fascinating that if that illustration is true and is going to be proven to be true, then you have to be the one who sees the whole elephant. How arrogant. How imperialistic to say that the rest of the world religions, they're blind. Oh, but me, in my new modern sensibilities, I can see that it really is one elephant. How is that not arrogant? Even better, how is that not an exclusive truth claim? Look, the truth is, whenever you argue for your basic reality in life, you have to argue exclusively. Even for those who look up and say to themselves, I just don't like how intolerant religious people are. In my back of my mind, I always want to be like, mm, that's awfully intolerant to those people who believe in absolute truth. It's inescapable. Keller says, the question is not, am I going to be a, re a religious fundamentalist or not? The question is, which system of fundamentals about life lead believers to be the most loving and receptive to those with whom they differ? A Christian has answered, I've only found that in Jesus. Only in Jesus. Which brings me to the third and final point. Entrance into Jesus' kingdom is not limited by uh, 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 hypocritical nonsense. It's also not limited in its scope in terms of who it's for. But limit, entrance into the kingdom is limited by time. The Christian says that salvation is going to be all of grace uh, or isn't salvation at all. But that's precisely what a religious person doesn't want to concede. Look, so much of, the, of, of uh, that Luke records in the next story about the man who is still stuck in his Jewish way of thinking when he says, Hey, Lord, it's only a few that are going to be saved, right? I mean, it's only us. Jews. Isn't that what you're basically saying? And he comes in and Jesus is like, no, <laughs> it's actually going to be expansive in that way. It's going to be for anybody. But because it's going to be for anybody, it's going to be tough for you. It's going to be narrow for you. Jesus doesn't answer the man's questions. He, he turns it back on him. The way is narrow. And there's lots of people that will try to enter, but they won't be allowed. Uh, one of my favorite sort of uh, preacher commentators is a guy named Kent Hughes. And he, he summed up this passage incredibly well in one sentence. He says, the way is narrow for these people precisely because it is so broad. <laughs> Let that sink in for a second. In other words, Jesus is saying, the reason why it's going to be narrow for you is because you're going to look at them and be like, well, not those people. Those people are coming in? 
And all of a sudden, it's going to get very narrow. Because I can't let those people in, not those people. Look, Jesus is saying that because those people get in, it's going to be hard for you. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He's made that point. This last point drives home something that's vital to understand. Because though, though the kingdom of God is not limited in its scope, it is limited in its duration. It's downright disturbing what Jesus says here. He's saying that there will come a time when the invitations to the kingdom come to an end. And if we spent a life categorically refusing other people's entrance into my circles, Jesus is saying, fine, then you will forever, in eternity, be refused entrance into my circle. Isn't that fair? Look at how these religious leaders were arguing with the master of the house. We ate and drank in your presence we, and taught in your streets. What's their argument based on? It's based on proximity. I mean, come on, Jesus, we were in your general vicinity. Doesn't that count for anything? And Jesus' answer is proximity is not salvation. Salvation comes when you drop these things that used to distinguish you from those people. They go away. People who still want to hold on to some privilege of themselves, leverage, like I said before, against God, don't get salvation. Okay, so how do we apply this as we finish? Just a couple thoughts. First of all, this. At the heart of grasping Jesus' message is a graciousness of spirit. You know, it's supposed to fill our hearts with joy when, when, when little old ladies who are bent over with lifelong ailments get healed at church. We're supposed to be excited about that. When we find out that people from all over, east, west, north, south, will come in and, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. But you can tell if you've met this Jesus, if that's growing in you. I mean, take a litmus test here. Like, what does it do to you when you find out that someone got something they didn't deserve? What does that do inside you? <laughs> when you hear about somebody who you would not thought could have repented, that they repented, do you say to yourself, well, we'll see. <laughs> Jesus says, watch out. Because that's where the kingdom is coming. The spirit of the Pharisee is the opposite of what Jesus is trying to set forward. But secondly, and this one, this one is sobering. I think Jesus is saying that no one is guaranteed tomorrow's repentance. Jesus stresses that there is a time limit on all of this. In other words, the nature of our pride is such that every time we refuse to crack, that we refuse to humble ourselves, that my life is heading in a direction, it's one more lost chance to repent. And each next time, it gets harder and harder to do so. I mean, it's, it, again, campus ministry sort of does this to you over the years. For so long and so many times, there was a vibe that came out of college students. It was a little bit like, look, I'm, I'm only in this lifestyle for a time. This is my time. My parents told me that college was for this. You know, look, I'm going to get married soon enough. I'll change. Uh, there's a responsibility coming for me in my future. But here's the crazy thing. Now I'm old. I'm in my 50s. And I can look back and be like, actually, no, you won't. There's a lifetime of excuses. Oh, I'll wait until I get married. Well, you know what? When we have kids, we'll get back into church. I'll wait until my children graduate. We finally have some time. You know what, as soon as I sell my business, you know, I, and I'm financially viable, then I'll get around to these things. 
I'll wait until I retire when I've got nothing else to do. No, you won't. Because by that time, it just doesn't come into our minds. So what's the answer? Well, Jesus gives it to us in verse 24. He says the first word, strive. The Greek word there is is agonizomai, from which we get the word to agonize. Jesus is not saying, you know, if you strive enough, then you'll get into heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that entrance into my kingdom, it's going to get into those places where you agonize. It's going to gut you. It's going to cause your pride to be reversed at the deepest of levels and to give it up. And for those that do, you'll find rest in the, tree of, in, the, in the tree of heaven, the tree of the kingdom. And for those that don't, they'll have left to them whatever it is that they set their hearts on in their pride to save themselves. So yeah, in the end, Christianity makes exclusive truth claims. But in kind of a weird way, it's an inclusive exclusivity. And I think that's what truly makes it unique. In his book, Reason for God, Keller talks about how the earliest Christians, you know, made a reputation for themselves by constantly helping those around them, you know, ministering to the poor, taking care of the elderly. He asked this question in midway through that book. He says, why would such an exclusive belief system whose leader said that he was the only way in truth in life, why would that lead to behavior that was so open to others? It was, listen to this, it was because Christians had within their belief system the strongest possible resource for practicing sacrificial service and generosity and peacemaking. At the very heart of their view of reality was a man who died for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness. And reflection on this could only lead to a radically different way of dealing with those who were different from them. Wow. Did you see what he's saying? Say, look, everybody's a fundamentalist for their version of reality. The question is, which version of reality leads people to repentance and to joy and to service to others? Jesus answers, only in me. You will only ever find that in me. That is what makes him compelling. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you drive that home in us, even as we, as we close and sing together, that in Christ alone is where we have found our hope. And Father, we might sing that as an anthem from our souls this morning, that it might be true, that we might rejoice in it, and that we might boldly proclaim your truth to the rest of the world. Would you do that? Lord, we ask you in Jesus' name.